0: So um, just a bit of context, uh, I work in Southeast Asian Studies at the University of Sydney and I'm currently <coughs> undertaking a large ARC project that's looking at the intersections between NGO and trade union responses to migrant labour in Southeast Asia and East Asia. So it's a seven country study. My interest in this comes partly from earlier work I've done on NGO and trade union work in Indonesia, but a lot of work I've done also on migration. So I know some people here are familiar with Southeast Asia, but just a little sense. Is Southeast Asia something that's on many people's agendas here? Okay, so I'll keep I'll give the context as we go along then. Basically, Southeast Asia is a really interesting place to look at this because it's an area where there's a lot of temporary labour migration across national borders, so they're much still much firmer than the ones you find in the EU. So we're talking about millions of people every year crossing the borders in search of work and as has been the case elsewhere, governments primarily imagine these people as migrants. Their migration status was very much the way that they were defined within the host country but also in the home country. More interestingly perhaps for what I'm going to talk about today, this is also the case for trade unions. So for trade unions, which as we know are very much nationally based organisations, parts of international um, networks, but very much focused on the national scale. Migrant workers were simply other. They were a threat to local workers. They were undermining local conditions. I'm sure these narratives are narratives you're very familiar with in your context. So what happened in Southeast Asia, as I believe is also the case in Europe, is that it was actually migrant labour NGOs rather than unions that were the primary responders to the plight of the migrant worker, particularly domestic workers, but also other sorts of workers, and especially undocumented workers. And for many years, They they combined an activist approach, an advocacy approach, with the initial sort of palliative um, pastoral care type activities that, again, we're very familiar with helping with legal cases, providing shelters and so on. But especially in some of the countries like Hong Kong and Malaysia, this, this proved to be very inadequate because you had so many people coming in that the caseload was impossible. So a lot of these migrant labour NGOs that basically came out of middle class women's organisations and then later some other sorts of human rights organisations decided they had to start organising. So they started organising workers in fairly informal organisations. They couldn't register even as associations sometimes and certainly not as unions, though Hong Kong of course is the exception to this story. In Southeast Asia that's certainly still the case. But as this organising proceeded, NGOs came to the realisation that this wasn't enough either. Because the trouble is, the whole international labour system, the access to industrial relations mechanisms, both at the national level and at the level of the ILO, is still, of course, all channeled through unions. And since migrant workers couldn't form their own unions in these contexts, really the NGOs had to look to the traditional trade unions to find a place for the migrant worker cause. And this has been extremely challenging. So, basically what happened is you've got this push from the NGO sector, which, especially in the Southeast Asian context, is extremely hostile when it comes to trade unions. I've been in meetings where they've tried to get unionists and NGO people together, and it's only after the fourth or fifth meeting over a number of years that they can actually talk to each other without basically spitting. It's really, really visceral dislike, because the NGOs, the, the union movement there is weak, the NGOs criticise them for not doing anything, for being puppets of government or whatever it is. And then um, unionists feel that these NGOs are middle class meddlers who don't really understand what it's like to organise, they don't know how hard it is. And so there's all this sort of tension, which is really, really pertinent because it's in the light of that, even, that NGOs still decided through the Migrant Forum in Asia and other organisations that they had to start working with unions. Nicola and I did some research in 2004-2005 for... um, Frida Iber-Stiftung, the Philippines office, looking into this nexus between the migrant worker NGOs and the unions in a number of countries in Asia. And this this came through in all our case studies. But there's something, another part of this story that sometimes get lost in the migrant labour literature on Asia, where most scholars are more concerned about anthropology or about the sort of the sociology of NGO activism than of labour organising. So because of that particular context, which is quite different from, say, people like Jane Hardy and others who are working here that are much more talking about unions. So in the Southeast Asian context, unions have been very much missing from the migrant labour activism story, except where they're accused of not doing anything. Okay, so that's the other thing. But because of what's happening in Europe, the global union federations, of which you know the local unions in Southeast and East Asia are affiliates, started to actually start organising migrant workers in this part of the world, and that flowed through into their trade union aid agendas. And a lot of the unions in Southeast Asia are very dependent on trade union aid for a lot of quite basic activities. So there's a really really quite a complex donor-recipient relationship within the trade union movement in um, Southeast Asia. Not so much Singapore, that's a different case, but certainly in Malaysia, in Thailand, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, where if a global union decides that its affiliates should take on a project, whether it be about domestic workers, whether it be about organising workers into their own unions, whether it be about assisting migrant workers in other ways, basically the local affiliates will, at least on the surface, attempt to do so. How much that um, trickles down is another whole question, which I won't deal with very much today. But there is very much a a donor-driven agenda in terms of these sorts of issues, which has been very interesting. So you've got these two quite different forces pushing together, focusing on local unions, saying, listen, it's time that you started to take migrant workers seriously. And this is an interesting thing in the Southeast Asian context, because we're talking about a context full of developmentalist economies. they are about governments that believe that economic growth will trickle down and support all the masses. They have no welfare state, much to speak of. They have, in places like Indonesia and the Philippines, large soft labour markets where lots of people aren't employed. So labour migration is very much part of the developmental of the state agenda from the sending side, but then from the receiving side it's also important because a lot of the Asian miracle is underpinned by migrant labour, whether they be working in the factories or in other people's homes or in the service sector. So you've got this test case that's particularly interesting with its weak labour movements that are highly dependent on trade union aid and then an extremely interventionist approach to labour migration. So in Southeast Asia, labour migration is not just organised by the receiving countries in terms of how many people they want to let in, what sectors they can come into and so on, but the sending countries like especially Philippines and Indonesia have very formal programmes for labour migration, that you're supposed to go through all these hoops before you can leave as an unskilled labour migrant. It's different if you're a professional, of course. So you've got this interesting nexus between very strong labour migration regimes on one hand and weak trading movements on the other in a context where labour migration is a key of economic development. So basically what I'm arguing in the larger project and it flows through into this paper is that instead of just looking at the migration continuum which has been the main focus of a lot of work in our region on this question, we really do need to plot that against the industrial relations continuum. So if we think of industrial relations as going from very formal workplaces, traditional male workers in nine-to-five factory jobs or in um, white-collar sectors, down to uh, undocumented, yeah, people in a very informal sector position, many of whom are undocumented, and we plot that against the um, migration axis from very formalised factory documented workers to people who have no papers and have fairly marginal existence, we start to get a more sensible picture of how migrant workers fit into industrial relations in the host country. And I'm arguing that this is important because, for the reasons I alluded to before, it's actually trade unions in host countries in this part of the world who are the most likely to be able to do something about migrant labour at a structural level. They're not good at providing pastoral care, they're not that good at advocacy, but they can actually get migrant labour concerns on the bargaining table at a national level and at a workplace level as an industrial relations issue, as an issue of migrant workers as workers rather than just as migrants. Okay, so that's the key point here. But flipping it on its head, coming from a labour perspective, this also offers a really interesting site to think about the limits of the labour movement. And this goes back to earlier work I had done. Should we think of the labour movement as just being a trade union movement or do we find a place in it for organisations like NGOs, like welfare groups that are interested in groups of workers but are not trade unions? So again, those, the nexus between those two continua really give us a good way of starting to um, think about strength of unions in particular sectors, what sectors migrant workers are employed in and how that actually affects their access to their rights as workers rather than simply as migrants. So basically, thinking about the migration status nexus, we know that it's been constructed primarily as an immigration issue and that the trouble is when you work overseas, you're still a citizen of your home place, but your identity as worker lies elsewhere. You're a worker in someone else's jurisdiction. So we get all the literature and all the activism about right to stay, about right to documentation and so on, things that very much concern the migration question. And from the the position of the unions of the home country, we have these people who are not members. They don't actually become workers until they leave that national sphere where unions operate. So they're quite outside of the purview of a traditional trade union. So trade unions that don't have much money, they don't have very strong membership bases, they have better things to do with their time and money than to try to organise people who are going to work in Malaysia or in Singapore or in Europe for that matter. So they really fall between this gap in terms of, if you put on the labour conceptual lens rather than thinking of them totally as migrants. In terms of the other axis, as I mentioned before, you know, even in Europe we know that unions are still best able to deal with permanent employees in concentrated workplaces. And they're really struggling with that globally, trying to find new ways to represent workers. And In some cases they're getting somewhere, in a lot of cases they're not So, Although migrant workers are an extreme case, they're actually quite symptomatic of other sorts of groups in this category, like contract workers, all the other sorts of groups that neoliberal (coughs) systems of production are increasingly bringing in our own societies, but have been there for a long time in places like Asia. So in a way, if unions can shift on the migrant labour question, it also helps them to rethink their own way of being in other ways that may actually give them a future in a global production system that's not very sympathetic to them. So all this started to happen pretty much in the mid-2000s in Asia, about the time we were starting to do the research. We were asked to do it because the migrant forum in Asia and some of the trade unions were very much talking to each other about trying to bridge these gaps. But in the later years, in the last half-dozen years, it's actually been the DAFs, the Global Union Federations, who have come out as the major pushers of further action. There's a lot of rhetoric from the NGO side, but their ability to affect what unions do is very limited. So that's why the guff story becomes very important. And the connection with Europe it's also important because, as I mentioned before, the agenda is coming from headquarters. It also depends very much on individual agency within the trade union movement. If you have a regional secretary in a GUF that's interested in the migrant labour issue, like Christopher Ng in Singapore, who's in PSI, the Public Services International, a really conservative GUF with not much interest in the migrant labour question, but a personal interest. So he's really pushed the agenda and helped establish some very good collaborative arrangements between different GUFs on this question. And what's happening in these terms of this, I have a pretty picture which I would have shown you if I had used my PowerPoint, but basically of all the GUFs, there's only really four or five that are taking the migrant labor issue seriously in Southeast Asia, particularly in construction, public services, which is generally health, and also in um, yeah, construction public services and UNI, which is a more general one, and it's mostly taken up the domestic worker question. Notable exceptions are things like IMF, the metal workers. In this region, there are lots of migrant workers in electronics factories in Malaysia that come from Indonesia. But because the Global Union Federation isn't particularly interested in Europe, affiliates aren't interested in Europe, that flows through, and in the regional context, they're also not that interested. Yeah, There's some others that are not so... Relevant. The Transport Federation has a lot of its own programs, but it's not so interested in collaboration. But um, basically, in terms of impact, most of the impact is happening in the receiving countries. Sending countries are trying to get the unions are trying to do something, but for the reasons I mentioned before about the structure of the trade union movement, it's very difficult to achieve anything. In receiving countries, the impact varies, and it's far weaker than in some European contexts and doesn't necessarily measure, um, mirror those patterns, but it, they have had a significant change in the way trade unions talk about migrant labour, which in contexts like Malaysia has made a real difference. Four or five years ago, the Malaysian Trade Unions Congress was really anti-migrant workers. It was all about sending them home, they're taking Malaysian jobs, all that sort of traditional classic rhetoric. And now they have some programs on the ground, but the, the change in rhetoric about migrant workers being workers too has actually had a real impact on how the government can respond in terms of policy, so not at the core, but at the edges, the MTUC's new discourse of accepting migrant workers—not irregular migrant workers, that's another whole issue—but regular migrant workers has actually changed the rules on how the government can talk about them and how legislation treats them to some extent. Most interestingly, in, in Malaysia, are perhaps the construction workers (BWI) is a very active guff worldwide, but um, the timber workers in Malaysia actually have employed <coughs> with. BWI funding and a Nepali organizer who goes down to the to the workplaces and actually organizes in his own language. And this isn't a, a strategy that's only been used in Asia, but in Asia it's a very new one. So there are some quite concrete small packages, but the discursive change I think is much more important. You've got very different contexts in, say, Singapore, where the unions say that they accept migrant workers. They they are open to migrant workers if they're documented, but they're really not an agenda in. The, either on the government's agenda or the union's agenda in the same way, and of course the union is very much captured by the government. So, I won't go into more examples of the successes, but basically, as I alluded to before, there are a number of factors that are very clearly responsible to how the differentiation in the way this process is happening. One is clearly the strength and priorities of the host country affiliate, which is very much in Southeast Asia about what the government thinks about trade unions in general. So where trade unions are very much controlled by the government, like Singapore and Malaysia, you know, Singapore, they sing the same tune on migrant labour. In Malaysia, there's, there's this process of gent- gentle massaging, but the trade union movement's very weak, and the government finds ways to keep it weak with regard to migrant labour. So it's um, recently agreed to a system of contracting that actually excludes unions even more. For a long time, they, excluded, they wouldn't let you organise electronics workers anywhere which of course affected free trade zones and the migrant workers who worked in them. So they don't have a very strong bargaining position against the government. Thailand, which is the other major receiving question, is a basket case as far as the um, trade union movement's gone. So the, the, the gufs are trying to work a little there, but not achieving much. Places like Indonesia, which actually has gone from having one of, one of the most controlled trade union movements to one of the most free, it's free in the last few years, is potentially an interesting site. But because it's a sending country, it doesn't have the same opportunities to organise migrant workers as the unions in the receiving countries. So we've got all this sort of variation according to that industrial relations axis that I was speaking about before. Then, as I said, also, you've got to think about the priorities of the Global Union Federation itself, both internationally, which basically means Geneva, or in the region. And there's another whole interesting story to be told about the fluidity of that. And we think of the trade union movement internationally as being a very slow-moving bureaucratic or, uh, structure. But when you get down to the regional secretaries, it's amazing how much power a single man, and they're pretty much all men, has to change an agenda. So and I've chased this through on another project looking at the response to the, the tsunami in ACHE, trade union aid in that context. And it's very clear that these individuals can make a huge impact on the sorts of agendas and the collaboration that's happening between BWI, PSI and UNI in Southeast Asia, which is a matter for comment for trade unionists from all sorts of places, they're very impressed that they can actually work together on anything has actually achieved quite a, a bit of momentum in the region to start to think about these sorts of changes. Finally, the important, the third important vector of that, that relationship is the actual strength of the relationship between the affiliate and the GUF and how much that relationship depends on trade union aid. In Singapore, unions don't need trade union aids. They seek legitimacy in the international eye rather than requiring money. So it's quite a different dynamic. In places like Malaysia, you're going to get these projects partly because the affiliate needs the money. What's interesting for me, though, is to say, "Okay." They're taking it for very utilitarian purposes. What happens then? Does does the process of taking these projects actually change the way that people in the organisation think? Does it trickle down through? And um, I think, like many of like if you take the trafficking agenda in Southeast Asia, people who start to talk the talk end up walking a lot more of the walk than they hope to. So I mean, that's also an interesting dynamic. So questions raised: Should we trade union in developing country trade unions be engaged with the migrant worker issue at all? Some people would say no, they can't even get themselves organised, what are they doing spreading their resources so thinly, isn't this something that should be left to NGOs? I think there's three issues here, one is that the NGO approach is limited for the reasons I mentioned before, they're not part of these structures of industrial relations which really do end up determining what happens in formal sector workplaces. Secondly. I think that, as I mentioned right at the beginning, the migrant labour issue actually has the possibility of changing the way unions think about other non-traditional constituencies. So I actually think it's a lead issue in many ways for trade unions in their attempt to modernise and adjust to a new world. The third thing is the potential for success. As my examples have suggested, this really varies, but I think there are enough good news stories out there to show that it's something that should be perceived. Okay. Finally, the um, potential and limits of the trade union aid model as um, pushing through these kinds of change. The first is the problems with donor cycles. And donor cycles are just as much a problem for trade unions in this part of the world as they are for NGOs. So if your donor has a three-year program on migration, you do it. What happens when they move to gender? Do you stay on the migration question? Does it get folded into gender? Does it just disappear? This is a real problem where these programs are externally driven. And the trouble is, even if that process of change happens internally, it doesn't come with money. So that's the big dilemma there. And then my final point would be the importance of the the context in each of the receiving countries. I'd be interested in people's comments on how much this is also the case in Europe, but the agencies of individuals and small groups in what is apparently a much less flexible organisational structure than it is. Thanks very much.
1: Well, I keep this uh, short because unlike Michelle, this is sort of quite new, I'm sort of playing with new ideas. It is totally underdeveloped, totally not thought through. The starting point or background um, to the sort of um, talk here today are the fairly recent um, developments of uh, economic migration have become issue of debate at the global level, global level of policy making, by which I mean the, U- the UN as well as international organisations whose main members essentially are states, with the notable exception of the ILO. And this development of this sort of evolving global governance of migration has in actual, in actual fact been covered, uh, captured in academic studies by this concept of governance, yeah, global governance of migration. And this uh, global governance of migration phenomenon is characterized by the discourse of a management of migration. And this is based on the idea of promoting a a certain type of migration, which is temporary or circular migration, and this is in turn based on this infamous idea of a triple win solution yeah, to um, this whole global migration phenomenon, meaning everybody involved is supposed to, to, to benefit: origin countries, destination countries, as well as the migrants themselves. And migrants themselves are supposed to benefit because they are supposed to be given some kind of minimal protection in terms of uh, labor rights. Now, uh, in this sense, this whole management of migration discourse, which has sort of, uh, you know, appeared on the global level, is also linked to this renewed interest in the link between migration and development. Now, I've just used uh, deliberately the phrase economic migration rather than labor migration um, because this whole policy framework is actually largely based on the experience of the highly skilled migrants. Now, with the many, if not actually even the majority of migrants, uh, being less skilled, and most of them working in sectors which are sub- subject to very little um, protection by labor laws and also very little um, mainstream uh, protection by um, trade unions, this really raises the question then of the workability of this third component of the triple win um, mantra yeah? and, what it actually, and what is really being done about um, migrant rights beyond mere rhetorics. Now, at this moment in time, the um, social and even economic costs uh, to many migrants and their families are in actual fact sidelined. You know, rhetorically they are sort of there, but usually it's just a footnote, they are clearly sidelined if not ignored or underestimated. So many of these temporary contract migrants are in actual fact unable to lift themselves out of the situation they left behind. You know, families, uh, we see increasing numbers of families breaking up, children growing up, hardly seeing their parents. Because although they are temporary, particularly the domestic workers are in actual fact able to kind of repeat contracts, never really knowing how long it would be. But you know, they can repeat, 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 and end up not seeing their children for like 10 years or even longer. And yet, this new discourse, you know, on the global, the, the, this global governance discourse, celebrates has begun to celebrate these migrants as agents of development. And, and this is done in a kind of individualized manner. So at least as, you know, as, as far as these temporary contract migrants are concerned, it's quite different from the kind of, uh, there might be undocumented, but more or less long-term migrants uh, in, the, in the U.S. who are involved in these hometown associations, and, and it's slightly more sort of collective, you know, how they try to kind of boost development back at home. But in this case, in the t- temporary contract migration case, it's much more individualized. So we have to really ask to what extent these migrants can actually be agents of development and should they and what development are we talking about? Because the, the fewest among them are able really to break out of this cycle of you know migrating, earning some money, uh, maybe acquiring some skills, finding meaningful work upon returning and breaking it, stopping. Yeah? And I've just actually come back from a conference in The Hague and I've learned uh, even the seasonal agricultural uh, migration program in Canada uh, there was a paper, and this researcher said it now attracts the sons of fathers who had already done this for like 10, 15, 20 years. Eh? And we've got some anecdotal evidence of uh, uh, daughters of uh, domestic workers, you know, who through the remittances by their mothers got better education. But what do they end up doing? for a domestic work. Eh? So we have kind of like you know how this even now goes, uh, you know, across generations. So one really again has to ask where is here the economic and social development? So breaking the cycle, it requires actually much more than um, individual agency, really. The the link between the migration and development needs to be politicized in terms of this uh, discourse, how it's happening on the global level and how it affects uh, national policy. And what do I mean by politicization? I mean these issues have to be taken up by political activists, they have to inject um, rights-based demands, uh, into this discourse and have to voice them um, at policy-making um, arenas. Now in terms of um, scholarly debate on temporary contract migration, they are mainly shaped by scholars in sort of two strands uh, of arguments. Um, one strand, they tend to be, you know, like the Joseph Karen, sort of um, political theorists that come from liberalism, um, looking at, looking at uh, who are interested in the implications of t- uh, temporary contract migration on rights. But they look at rights of migrants from a post-migration perspective, i.e. the destination country. And then the second strand are people who are interested in the link between temporary migration and this migration and development nexus, and the governance literature, governance, global governance of migration, kind of falls under the second strand, and rights issues come into it, but again... Um, they don't really go beyond a rights-based approach to migration itself. So there is sort of largely a disconnect between this development and the rights scholarship. So in other words, the, the, well, if you like, the push factors of migration, the causes of migration, they have not really been addressed from a rights-based perspective. Now the Global Commission on International Migration, in its report in two, 2005, it has sort of touched upon push factors from an indirect rights perspective by saying the three causes of migration are demography, demography, you know, lots of young people, you know, not finding any work, development meaning lack of development, and democracy again meaning lack of democracy. And by uh, putting democracy into the report, they've sort of hinted at, you know, there is also an issue with rights, but it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, doesn't go any further. And the exploitative angle of the, the uh, migration development nexus debate is quite well um, captured by you know, scholars coming from an, a political economy perspective, like you know, Ra- Raul Delgado Weiss, for example. Um, and this is a, you know, a very important analysis, but, but it tends to be overly structural. It's important, but it is quite structural. And I personally am more interested coming from the sort of rights advocacy angle I'm also interested in the meSO level of certain organizations and and, and and how they respond to all of this. So what we but when we look at this now empirically, so what we can in fact um, observe is a rising level, I mean basically from almost zero, a rising level of politicization, by migrant rights activists, in terms of you know forming um, a migrant uh, membership-based organizations, forming networks, um, collaborating with trade unions, or forming their own unions, you know like domestic worker unions, which sort of are outside of the formal mainstream trade unions, but they call themselves union. They are membership-based, and uh, so what we what we can observe here is an, a certain space is being opened up and created by migrants. To allow them to kind of step out of this state of docility, because this is quite often what they are being charged for. There's a sort of perception: temporary contract migrants are only interested in economic gains. They're apolitical. They don't really want to engage. But this is not quite quite right, you know, because once they kind of, you know, the 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 whole migration experience actually does raise, uh, you know, certain questions. Once you learn, well, you know, actually I am exploited here, you know, and this is. You can see this more and more. You are demonstrations happening even in Singapore, in places like Singapore, where you didn't see this before, or the Middle East. So there's a sort of a rising awareness of a double exploitation, really, being well sort of exploited by the sending country as well as by the receiving country. And this is not only happening, you know, in, in certain pockets in Asia, but there's also a kind of there's a building up of a global migrant rights movement. And global in the sense that um, it was set up uh, in 2006 um, at the time when the uh, UN high level dialogue on migration and development, uh, happened in response to that really, and it was set up uh, in New York. Um, they call them, themselves a global action and it's also global in the sense that it actually targets this whole um, you know, uh, global discourse on uh, managed migration. And basically they attack this whole promotion of temporary migration. While the rights of migrants are actually being ignored, and Asia, in a sense, is a quite important case um, case study because it, um, it much of the uh, migrant rights movement, you know, on the global level, is actually spearheaded and pushed, driven by Asians. Quite, um, you know, by organizations based in the Philippines, but it's sort of spread. And as Michel has already said, uh, Asia is also um, home to. An, um, Rising, expanding uh, migrant rights movement. Um, the migrant forum in Asia, uh, created in 1994, it's, it's got its secretary in, in Manila, but it's, uh, it's 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 growing and it's it's all over Asia and includes organizations in sending and receiving countries and increasingly also unions. They are affiliated with Migrant Rights International, uh, you know, headquarters in Geneva, so here there's also a link to the uh, European, North American, and uh, PGA now includes South Americans and Africans. In that sense, one can call it global. And uh, now important here is um, the PGA, the the People's Global Action, it's actually a slightly longer title, People's Global Action on Migration, Development, and Human Rights. The title in itself already indicates The the global rights movement really criticizes the current policy making for institutionalizing migration as a development program without giving due concern to the social costs involved for migrants and the left behind. And and they are demanding basically a rights-based approach to migration and development. And um, this is also evident uh, on the regional level of governance by which I mean ASEAN, you know as a regional body, as weak as it is, I just wanted to say one word on this on, on, on the uh, regional governance level, so this is also evident on the regional level uh, by which I've been mean ASEAN, because ASEAN, um, so the, 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 the regional migrant rights movement are channeling their concerns and demands to the ASEAN Forum on Labour Migration via the task force of Asian migrant workers, and the task force includes migrant NGOs but also trade unionists, and there is such thing as an ASEAN declaration on the protection and promotion of the rights of migrant workers, it's quite new from 2007, it's only a declaration, it's not a convention. But it's quite interesting because it does make reference uh, to development, sort of indirectly, by asking senders to, and I quote, so senders are asked to ensure access to employment and livelihood op- opportunities for their citizens as sustainable alternatives to migration, to, to the migration of workers. So migrant rights really, at least as far as the rhetorical level is concerned, are clearly seen as going beyond fair labor rights at, uh, in the country of destinations to also include, well, in actual fact the right to not have to migrate in the first place or to have more choice. And this is, uh, you know, I mean, way in which this is, can, can be turned, turned into some claimable, literally a claimable right, is a different story. And at this moment in time, it's purely rhetorical. You know, all I mean, ASEAN is you know not like European Union, but at least you know these things are appearing here. So it basically, what, it, what this really is about is about broadening choices, broadening the choices in terms of you know, better education, getting better skills, and with this uh, being able to get uh, you know, better migration deals, better uh, working visas, and operating really on these two fronts, not only, you know, certain, certain labour rights in destination countries, but also basically the right to have more choice, and maybe even the right not to have to migrate in the first place. So hence, what I'm trying to do with this, um, and this is where sort of new ideas are coming in, is sort of to integrate this whole idea of a rights-based approach to migration, a rights-based approach uh, to development, which is um, sort of a little bit of a challenge for the near future.